Hi, everybody. This is Joanne with Read Science, and I'm joined, as always, by with my co-host, Jeff Showmeyer, sitting in Maryland. I'm in Illinois, and our guest today is in Ireland. So it's mid-afternoon or something for you, right? Oh, I have to look at my watch. That's how old I'm getting. Yeah, it's, it's after four in the afternoon, so. Yeah, it's still my morning. So when we get done, I have plenty of the day left, right? So um, uh, today we, we are talking with Dr. Grimes, right? I don't want to say it wrong. It's no, like, no, you said if, it perfectly. What if it was Grimace or something? <laughs> I worked on an ID. Uh, I was working in a hospital years ago, and they printed the ID with Davy Grimes, which I quite <laughs> like, but they made me give it back because it wasn't my name. So, sure. <laughs> so, well, so you've written actually a couple of books, and we are sort of going to be talking about both of them because they're different versions of the same book. So, uh, today I have the U.S. version of your book called Good Thinking, and then we get to follow the fun arrows in the flow chart that says why flawed logic puts us all at risk and how critical thinking can save the world. Your U.K. version is called The Ir Irrational Ape, but I think the same subtitle, right? It had originally the same subtitle, but the new edition has a new subtitle, just <laughs> confused anyone that wants to try and, and peruse the back catalog because you know why would make things straightforward why do yeah. anything logical <laughs> like that like you mean new version as in paperback yeah i think the new one is about disinformation propaganda how we avoid falling for disinformation propaganda conspiracy mm. theory because mm. obviously the last year has uh, rammed home some of the points that i talked about in the book when the uk edition were hypothetical have now become very very real very real <laughs> so i so think my publisher decided time to time to point that out very, very bluntly on the cover. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so actually, uh, I'm going to read your bio because there may be people out there who don't quite know who you are. So let's take a look. We've got Dr. David Robert Grimes is a physicist, cancer researcher, and science journalist, many hats. Uh, is affiliated with Dublin City University and Oxford University of Oxford. He contributes to both the BBC and RTE discussing science, politics, and media, and has contributed to The Guardian, The Irish Times, the BBC, PBS, and The New York Times, among others. He also advises on science policy and was a joint recipient of the 2014 Nature Sense About Science Maddox Prize for Standing Up for Science. And I think as we go along, we may find out why people need to stand up for science and <laughs> it can actually be a little dangerous, uh, which yeah. makes no sense. Uh, I mean, we so live in a post-truth world getting cold. So, I mean, maybe, maybe kind of inevitable, but <laughs> we'll find out <laughs> as we go. We'll just, we'll answer all the questions. Uh, okay, Jeff. <laughs> I, you've, give, you've given us a very nice survey of logical fallacies, conspiratorial thinking, all the things that some of us think of as, as bad things and other people deny that they do them. Uh, and lots of good examples. And I expect those will come up. And I was trying to figure out just where I wanted to start. And I was reminded that here, here in America, at least, and you can tell me about the UK and Ireland and Great Britain if you want, we have a long history since our founding, at least, of, of uh, intense anti-intellectualism as a thing that is sometimes greatly valued. And many writers have noted that. And I suspect we may have imported that in colonial and earlier times. Um, 
from the homeland. But I don't know. And then I thought, rather than starting with all the things that can go wrong, maybe we should start at a sort of top-level thing of why we think, all of us here in this box today, think that critical thinking, rational analysis are the way to go and what it is that is, is being talked about there even. And then we can start to take it away, take it apart in that usual scientist's reductive method uh, to the extent Smiling that you like. And just poking at it. Do you know what, Jeff? That, that's a brilliant observation you, you've made about anti-intellectualism. Because I was only thinking about this recently. Um, and you, you point out America has, has a tradition of it. Mm -hmm. But I would say that Europe does to an extent as well. And in particular times. So one of the things, one of my favorite authors is Umberto Eco, the, mm -hmm. the Italian philosopher. And he wrote a, a book on, on the 14 traits of what he called ur-fascism, like the mm -hmm. prototypical kind of, of, of movement to denigrate and control. And one of the tenets that I found in that that really shook me was to denigrate experts, to, to basically um, dismiss people that knew more, to dismiss science, to dismiss authority, is, is fundamentally something that uh, crops up an awful lot in history. During the Great Terror, after the French Revolution, um, there was, when they were executing some of the most well-known aristocratic chemists and physicists and people like that, the argument made by some of Rob Speer's men was, we have no need for genius. Mm -hmm. And it obviously, it sounds much better in French, and my French is poor, so I won't try to, to do the <laughs> translation. But it was—it's a real thing, and you see it. Um, you saw in during the Brexit referendum, Michael Gove saying, "We've had enough of experts in the UK." Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons that critical thinking is so denigrated in certain environments is that without analytical thought, you become very pliable to demagogues, to charlatans, to people that wish to take advantage of you. And I would argue that, going to answer your other question, the only shield we have, the only, to use Sagan's term, the only candle in the dark we yes. have against, uh, I know he should copyright that, but 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 God rest I was God. going to use it when I asked the question, but I forgot to, to mention it. But I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to definitely tip my hat to Sagan's influence on my thinking. It's a very the good only, book. The, the only shield we have against people that would do us harm is that ability to stop and go, no, hang on, is, is that true? Should I subscribe to that? When that fails, the is the great Voltairean quote that those that who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Mm -hmm. We have seen that, and in recent American political history, that's quite mm -hmm. raw. I mean, we can't but think of things like Charlottesburg and, and, and that march to see what, even 6th of January this year, mm -hmm. uh, when yeah. people start embracing um, outlandish ideas, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going a bit of a tangent here. I'm sorry. But one of, okay. my, one of my <laughs> favorite philosophers is a guy called W.V. Coyne. And he, he wrote about our web of belief. Mm -hmm. And this is the idea that all of our beliefs are, are intimately interconnected. Mm -hmm. And if you think it's like a spider's web, to pull on one thing, if I decide that I want to believe, so let's go, I'll take politics out of it for a second. Say, let's say I really want to believe that alternative medicine works. Well, then I have to weaken my my just justificatory beliefs in, you know, why does science say this doesn't work? Well, I have to weaken my belief in science and I have to weaken my belief in medical authorities. We're living in the COVID era where we've seen people literally deny science to a huge degree. And we also know that that has affected their health and the health of people around them. So these aren't things in isolation. I'm often asked by people, what's the big deal if people believe silly things? I say, well, we all live in a society. 
-hmm. if you were living in a society with someone who doesn't accept basic facts, their vote matters every bit as much as yours. <laughs> so well, how do we arrive to, uh, on big problems like climate change or, or how we deal mm -hmm. with global pandemics? How can we hope to, to come up with good solutions if we can't even agree on basic facts? And, problems, and that, I guess, was the motivation for me. Problems for sure. that affect the world and society and things. And now, oh, my apologies, because like, oh, that, that was at least five more follow-on questions in there of, <laughs> well, if you have anti-intellectualism, you can see is good for uh, leaders with authoritarian inclinations. What convinces the followers? I don't know. We may get to that. Uh, what was the other thing we were... Oh, and I, I am very glad that you, you brought up this idea of the web and things, because I usually think of science as, you know, all of science is this web of interdependent facts that all support each other. And it, the extent now is, is huge. And that's usually where I start, although it's hard to explain to the person who, I don't know, sidles up to a young graduate student in the bar and say, let me tell you where Einstein got it wrong. It's like, it's no longer possible to say this is where Einstein got it wrong. And so every whatever it's like you, you can't do that. It's part of a huge thing that all has worked together for hundreds of years and been built. Uh, and it's like if you want the wall, you have to accept the bricks or something. That's um, a really nice analogy. I quite, I quite like that. Well, I might I, feel that, but I will. Credit you, you, you may. I, you. I can Don't tell worry. you where that where that came from. I've, I've used that for about 20 years, I think. <laughs> uh, oh, shoot. I, I should try to make a question out of that. I don't know what, what how do the anti-intellectual leaders get the anti-intellectual followers to go with them? Is it just everybody going around with anti-intellectual inclinations? Well, I think that actually there's, uh, that, that was, that was when I was, when I started writing this, I came, when I got into, I suppose communicating science kind of by accident mm. um, early or, or about when I was in my early twenties and didn't know anything about anything. I still know very little about anything. I just, mm -hmm. more it, gets, it gets worse. There you go. Yeah. I know I'm more aware of my, my, my intellectual shortcomings and that's okay. I mean, that's mm. some people never become aware of them. So at least on that, that, but one of the things that was a massive eye opener to me was that it is very tempting for people that are, inclined towards science and I imagine most of the viewers today will be inclined towards science to think that everything is an information deficit kind of problem that mm -hmm. you know it's just people don't know enough and we'll go mm -hmm. out there with the information but the Yale um, there's, there's kind of an interesting approach this information is not neutral right mm -hmm. nothing in isolation is that neutral we all put it into our cognitive basket or our little thing so our own psychology comes a massive massive impact so let's say I am, let's go with something that, that does happen. Let's say I am a hardcore libertarian tech bro. I'm not, mm -hmm. thank God. <laughs> but let's say, let's say um, Grimes, I'm not, is, is that Elon Musk's wife is actually not really a Grimes. Yes. That out. But um, I'm That's not married right. into that family, just in case anyone might think. But <laughs> Her name say, is different. She, yeah, she changed it. So. And let's say um, you, you suddenly come up with a problem like climate change. Now your fundamental motivating philosophy is, regulation is something that you are not really all for. And now I'm telling you that your freedom is impinging on other people's life and, and the world self. You have two options then, mm -hmm. okay? And one of them is really, really difficult and one of them is really easy. The difficult one is to go, wow, you're right. 
there's an extra boundary or regulation in my philosophy that requires me to update my prior belief, reflect <laughs> on it, and then find a version of my philosophy that can take into account this exception or this whatever else. That's an intellectually honest way to deal with things. Mm -hmm. That's hard. That's really hard. The easier thing to do is to deny, dismiss, downplay, or, or rubbish the problem. And this is what a psychologist for who's motivated reasoning, that you already mm -hmm. have a vision of the world and you're trying to cherry pick the aspects that resonate with you. Because when you come across information that, that jars, and, and you, you as both as scientists have definitely had this happen to you, you really think you, you have something and you got this down and then something just throws a spanner in the works <laughs> and you go, bloody hell, um, how do I deal with this? Mm -hmm. And the honest way, if you're being a good scientist, which you, you folks no doubt are, but not everyone is, uh, you go, all right, well, I, I need to account for that or, or, or work out what, you know, update the bounds or the limitations. It is far easier cognitively to dismiss that. Uh, so that's why you have people who deny climate change or even denying COVID. When I deal with people who are COVID skeptics, like I was writing Scientific American about this a while ago. And one of the things I said was you're often dealing with people who are scared and want to feel like they have control over the situation and perversely believing that Bill Gates or George Soros is pulling the strings is perversely more reassuring than realizing that we are more at the mercy of, of randomosity than we might like to admit. Mm -hmm. right. So Invisible the, the virus. Yeah. So the honesty, the, the honesty is the harder path then. And almost and, always, I guess. Absolutely. And the other thing as well, and, you know what, um, have you ever said something to someone and they've gotten really offended and you're like, what? what? Mm -hmm. And you realize that whether you meant to or not, you undermined their belief system. Mm -hmm. Now, on paper, we shouldn't do that, right? Our ideas are just ideas. We shouldn't care. But there is research uh, from, uh, from I always mix up Daniel Kahneman with Dan Cannon, in, well, <laughs> the guy from Yale. But his research has, been, oh, I think, I discovered this late, but it was it was fundamental to how I now approach things. The idea of identity protective cognition, that we, to some extent, embody our ideas. They become us. They become what defines us. So therefore, an attack on our philosophy, our idea, our pre-existing beliefs, even mm -hmm. if someone is not actually attacking them, they're just saying, that's actually not fully true. It's um, That can come across as a personal affront. And... I, I'm not into sports at all. So I realized this years ago when people would be into a sports team and I go, yeah, but they're not very good, are they? I mean, people get very offended. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, but look at the batting averages or whatever. This is terrible. Um, I've realized now that when sports comes up, I just nod and pretend I know nothing mm -hmm. because I do know nothing. It's not my thing. But that I was failing to see that they identified with that and that was part of their, their psychological makeup. And these problems, this motivated reasoning and this identity predicate cognition, both make it very easy to get anti-intellectual and work. It makes it really difficult to change your mind. Mm -hmm. If you've now put that as your armor and this is you, this is what you go around in the world saying, this is me. Um, changing your mind looks like a come down or like a, a walk back mm -hmm. and it shouldn't. We should be positively patting people on the back for changing their minds, high-fiving everyone for changing their minds. Instead, we look at it as weakness. And that right. I think is fundamentally a problem that feeds into anti-intellectualism. Well, okay. then the the question, as I first said, is so. So, who are you to tell me that you think rational thought and uh, critical thinking and rational analysis is better for us somehow? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I the first the, 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 I'll try to answer that, but the, the first why is it better? I why is it better? I shouldn't, yeah. I shouldn't appeal to authority. Sorry, but. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, no, that that's quite all right. So I, I think one of one of the reasons is what what people often think this is very abstract, and it's like, well, this is mm -hmm. this is, and it does seem abstract, which is why in the book I said stories matter. Yeah. No one, you could write a field guide with all these general heuristics and say this is what you should do and whatever else, and you know what, it wouldn't mean anything to people. But when you see in a story, and I think humans are storytellers we understand mm -hmm. stories we understand anecdotes we understand little things like that but i think if you show people that this is really liberating because you give people examples of where if you don't use critical thinking it's very easy to be misled and you can mm -hmm. show that you can if you want you can take out the pen and paper and do the bayesian inference you can do all that kind of jazz but then what you say to people instead of selling it as a detriment and go oh that's really complicated and archaic you say no 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 this is so liberating. And it's not just about understanding science or COVID or, or a vaccination or, or health policy or any of that kind of stuff. It's about deciding what car you buy. It's about deciding, you know, what choices you should make on a personal level that will most benefit or most achieve the goals you want. And it turns out the same fundamental set of tools uh, underpin all of that and the same mistakes, no matter whether you're talking about politics or science or, or anything else, the same set of mistakes plague us as humans because we are, to use the UK title, we are rational apes. I include myself in that, by the way. I, I did once get a bit of hate mail. I get quite a lot. And I got one bit that said, um, you know, oh, you think you're you're better than us. And I had to put it, no, every mistake in this book I have made repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And I would wager that almost any human being going has made these mistakes. So it's absolutely a case of it. And I, and I mean, one of the jokes is, why do we not call it the irrational ape in, in, in the US? Well, remember, evolution is still contentious yes. in wide swathes of the US. There's yeah. a fascinating history of that as well, why that is the case. Uh, but again, that we are a little, so just, I mean, I, I imagine most of the viewers of his show are not, are going to be fully on board with evolution. And, but <laughs> at the same time, it is to point out that, yeah, we are little, we have flaws in our cognitive mesh that can definitely bring us to bad outcomes. And I think that we have to what we have to sell it as a benefit thing. If we don't use critical thinking, we tend to achieve poorer and poorer outcomes. It's like prepping for a job interview. If you just go in, you know, half cocked, yeah. you're probably going to make a mess of it. But if you do a little bit of homework, you can really maximize your your outcome. And critical thinking is is that on a bigger scale. But I mean, I think you have to realize it's so liberating. It's not a. It's not. It's not an imposition. It's. It's a liberation. Is I'm not sure if I'm selling that very well, but I. I, no, I, I yeah, hope yeah. I <laughs> And so, so uh, uh, the cognitive, the uh, awareness deficit, the deficit of of understanding is not so much in facts. It's a meta deficit of understanding process and what to do with, uh, well, inputs uh, mm. to get at things that we might agree are facts absolutely and i i think um i think one of the things you realize i mean what made me start writing this down was when i started writing articles and again i went in with this naive i was 22 mm -hmm. 23 years old information deficit model stuff and when you get your first angry screed of hate mail you're like hang on a sec yeah what 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 in God's green earth upset you there, right? right? And then you realize there's this lo all this other stuff. And but I started noticing no matter what I was writing about, whether it's vaccination, whether it was about homeopathy, whether it was about nuclear power, the same series of mistakes yes. were underpinning all of them. And I noticed in my own thinking, 
hey, the way I used to think about that was wrong because I did it this way. And then I said, hang on, these are really kind of universal. I also talked a lot to belief psychologists because initially I was not even dismissive of psychology. I'm like, you know, I do the thing that sometimes scientists do. We can get a little bit arrogant about fields that aren't our own and go, or a lot. (laughs) And and, and my my, my ex-partner and now one of my best friends is a belief psychologist. So we had long conversations where she's like, you do have to think about this. I'm like, oh yeah, I guess you do. And, and this is the whole argument where humanities and science need to work together on things an awful lot. Um, not to say psychology isn't a science, it most definitely is. But, you know, communication matters. How things are going to be understood matters every bit as much mm-hmm. as the, the, the hard data behind it. So that was a humbling experience, for sure, but a very the, important learning one. The intensity of those reactions seems incredible uh, yeah. until perhaps, as you suggest, we trace it to attacking the person's identity, which is buried underneath this matrix of, of beliefs. Right. And it's easy to put your foot in that landmine by mistake. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, yeah. I'll right. cross you there. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I um, oh, for people who hate marking up books, sorry, I did it. Um, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, she wrote in a book. But I'm just <laughs> showing the, um, I don't know if you guys could see the blue underline. She can't read it. It's okay. But I just want to show the whole book where I underlined these are the the uh, fallacies, the logic flaws, the they all have names, and there's so many of them. There's so right? many. There, I mean, that's the thing. It's like you broke it down, and you said, "Okay, we've got errors in logic, the undistrib- fallacy of the undistributed middle." So every every sort of flawed way of looking at thing actually has a name, mm-hmm. thanks probably to psychology and philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. But with uh, the useful addition of stories to right, exactly. to illuminate so, and inform. So the words yeah. that aren't underlined talk about you know the topics and the stories that go with it. But um, yeah, I, I was like, oh wow, there is so much in here, and I should have made a nice table and put it online, but I didn't. <laughs> can we? Can we? There's there's some reasons that we wanted Joanne and I wanted to talk today about. Uh, the controversial things, so-called controversial things you get involved with, and and the, um, I don't know, throwing acid battery, battery acid on you attacks that, that people get into. And I thought maybe it would be interesting to summarize the, uh, what do I say, the, the great uh, flat earth controversy uh, fight between Wallace and Hampton, how that came out, and what Wallace, to his amazement, as a you know an unsuspecting person stepping on the landmine, uh, what was going on with that? Hey, do you know? Do you know that's interesting? And Wallace himself, um, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, is an interesting character because obviously co-discoverer of evolution mm-hmm. uh, was in constant uh, conversation with with Darwin, but also was an ardent anti-vaxxer later on. So, I mean, people can have bits of their, <laughs> but that's, that's neither here nor there. This particular debate, he, he saw a, an ad, he was a bit short of, of cash, and he saw an ad basically from a, a biblical literist, which, by the way, biblical literacy or is believing the, the Bible to be inerrant is actually quite a new thing. It's, it's late 1800s, early 1900s. Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean, even in the Middle Ages, the church knew that the Bible was mainly allegory, but Somehow that got lost in translation. In the... <laughs> anyway, um, he said basically a, a challenge to prove that the Earth was 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 a sphere, and 
we'd known this since time of er er Eratosthenes or whatever back in three thousand, you know, three thousand years ago. Yeah. That this is definitely a, a Eratosthenes, right? Thank you. That's how you yeah. pronounce it. I was singing my hair, going, I can see it written down. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I kind of, I did the mumbly thing, and, and you caught me. <laughs> but um, one, one of one of the things that he said, this is easy money, but he made a very fundamental mistake because he went out there and did the classic experiment to show curvature, which you know, we all know, and, and I won't bore people with, uh, but you can basically show the horizon disappearing and you can get a big enough body of water, put lights on it. Yeah. But no matter what evidence he gave to his challenger, it wouldn't accept it and he wouldn't pay up the bet. And he got more and more aggressive with him. And uh, in the end, it ended up with uh, him being, the was, I think it was Hampton was the guy's name, him actually being arrested for yeah. threatening bodily harm. I think I put it in the book. It's really graphic how he threatened harm against him. Yes. And Alfred Russell Wallace then like lamented that he'd spent about 15 years of his life and, and then <laughs> all these money on legal fees against this. What he learned in the very hard way was that you have to pick your battles. You oh, have right. to work. If someone is not engaging with you in good faith, um, there is there's no point in doing it. I do a series of videos on Instagram and the most thing I'm commonly asked is, you know, if I'm dealing with someone who believes in conspiracy theories, what should I do? Mm -hmm. And I always say the very first thing, if you're having a conversation with them, is to ascertain whether they're amenable to having a conversation about it mm -hmm. or whether they are actually only willing to get converts. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to do, particularly as family members. But choosing your battles is important because you could spend all your time mm -hmm. going online and throwing angry comments at people and saying, you're an idiot. And it's, it's nowhere. It's, it's a it's just going to, it's white noise. Uh, your efforts are much better focused on talking to people that have concerns, that have fears, that have questions. But mm -hmm. and I, I always point out that when it comes to, I did a paper on this recently uh, in plus one. Mm -hmm. And I argued that belief in medic, medicine and science is a spectrum. The same way we know that vaccine hesitancy is a spectrum. I would say acceptance of medical scientific concepts is on a spectrum. It's not that mm -hmm. someone is pro-science or anti-science. They might be the extremes. But the vast majority of people maybe don't have a strong opinion and float in the middle. And that will be influenced and nudged by what they read online, what they're shared, if they are exposed to conspiracy theories, which we know has a massive impact. That's why I do so much of my work on conspiracy theories. We know it has a massive impact on how people perceive the world around them. Yeah. So I think that if you get someone who's in the middle of a spectrum, maybe leaning towards being anti-science or anti-vaccine, that you can still talk to them and you can still have conversations and I think in my experience, I talk to vaccine hesitant parents all the time, uh, particularly on the HPV vaccine, which is which is massive personally mm -hmm. important to me. Um, I talk to them and what I often find is it's fear. They've heard scary things yeah. and that fear, misinformation, propaganda mm -hmm. has frightened mm -hmm. them. And what you really need to do is if you dismiss them or get angry at them, they're not going to listen to you. Mm -hmm. But if you hear their fear and go, that's really interesting. What if I showed you this? Would that help? What if I put you, and I found those conversations really, really work. But mm -hmm. I would say debate doesn't. And I would say social right. media, unfortunately, has turned it into a Punch and Judy show, a, a real debate thing. Mm -hmm. And we might have learned from, you know, looking at Eton College and all the the, the House of Commons in the UK, that this <laughs> kind of theatrical um, oration stuff is what works. Because we have a classical image of from archaic Greece that it was all debate. I would say discourse is far more important than debate because debate already puts you in a position it forces you to not be able to climb down or change your mind. But if we have a discussion, we can yeah. change our minds and no yeah. one faults us for it. If it's like, I'm against you and we're against this, your personal feelings get locked into that. And it's impossible to divorce them from. So when I get asked, I mean, by media outlets now, oh, will you do a debate against X, Y, and Z? 
I will often tell them no. And yeah. I will say, I will go on and discuss that for sure. I said, I'll have a conversation with someone about it, but I'm not going on. To, and, and particularly if it's something like vaccination, I will say, absolutely mm -hmm. no, that's false balance. Mm -hmm. If they're saying, will you debate this anti-vaxxer? I'm like, no, and you shouldn't be entertaining that because you don't debate the existence of Greenland. You can talk mm -hmm. about right. why people believe in vaccine and why people are afraid of it. That's a great discussion. That's public service to do. But if you want to say, let's debate a fact, uh, again, I don't understand the purpose of debating a fact. And that's yeah. what I, I now that I'm a bit older and wiser, I have to say that to producers an awful lot, which is no, don't, I wouldn't host that segment if I were you. I would, I would not do that, which means I'm denying myself, you know, any appearance fee, but it's more important to do. And also appearance fees are rare and not worth, <laughs> you know, particularly oh, in Europe, we they're not really worth anything. You're, you're, yeah. you're, well, you're 20 I think, euro for showing up. Hey, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, US doesn't even provide that. So, okay, there, <laughs> yeah. there you go. So, yeah, I was like, oh, you get paid to go on TV in the UK? Wow. Cool. You know, <laughs> but yeah. So debating facts is really misdirection. A little bit, it is. It puts you on the back foot. It, it makes you, you know, and, and it goes back to the burden of proof as well. Because, yeah. you know, obviously, I would say stuff that stuff that we can debate, do you prefer the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Who, you know, or uh, the obvious, the answer is obviously the Kinks. People always get that one wrong. But uh, <laughs> you know, we can, that's an opinion thing that we can have a debate about. Yes. And it's, but when you start going, you know, and, and again, if something... The problem with framing things as a debate is it makes things in the public mind look scientifically contentious. So this yeah. is called, often called the manufacturer versus We've seen it with climate change, where the scientific consensus is overwhelmingly in one way. Mm -hmm. And yet up until very recently, coverage in mainstream publications in the US was roughly 50-50 on mm -hmm. whether they accepted climate change or did not, which mm -hmm. gave the public a perception that there was a controversy. So therefore an inertia they could stay in. They didn't have to change anything. Right. Nothing had to be done, which was precisely the goal of, of that kind of coverage. So it's, it's, it, and that's what we call the false balance model. If it's a scientific mm -hmm. fact, we shouldn't be debating it. We can though have discussions about how we understand that and how we respond to it. A discussion about say climate change, we went, okay, climate change is a fact, fair enough. How do we deal with that? Well, then you can have people go, well, I think we should limit emissions here, or we should do this, or we mm -hmm. should do this. That's really useful. But if we can't even get the first hurdle, which is this mm -hmm. is happening, that's not good for any of us. You know. Well, in the U.S., we see that in every every uh, public opinion survey that asks mm -hmm. people how they feel about socialism and then asks them how they feel about individual government programs. And when you add them all up, the responses are vastly different. But right. deflecting by talking, mm -hmm. denying or debating the facts keeps you from having to discuss things like personal beliefs and what what causes you to fear something happening and that the feeling of inadequacy of what can I do to keep the uh, the globe from warming up two more degrees yeah, uh, yeah. And who knows no easy answers to it either I mean it's easy for us to sit here and and, and but like we no, but it's start a, somewhere it's, to get to the answers, you know, and that we, is we we picture this whole matrix of beliefs around web of beliefs that people have that form themselves, and rather than you know punching the hole at the one thing, uh, you have to work on deforming that and seeing if you can restructure the web that supports all of those things somehow, and that's all held up by fears and and uh, what the emotional amygdala part of the brain. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, okay. 
Well, I'll think I, about that I, for a minute. <laughs> I was just thinking about, um, and you had brought it up in the book, like how you can hold almost like two completely different thoughts. And, and this has sort of come to light in the U.S. because, <laughs> of course, of course, but elsewhere too. Like people don't want to wear a mask because maybe they're not, they're, they're afraid of the virus, but they're, they're acting like they're not afraid of the virus. But then they realize, actually, now they're afraid of something that's actually impossible, which is after we get vaccines, some mysterious invisible thing comes off of us and affects people you know so so wait what is it like you're you're not afraid of the invisible thing that actually causes problems but you're afraid of an invisible thing that actually doesn't exist yeah you know so it's like what is happening here what is happening here? Well, I think yeah, telekinetic vaccination would be very, very uh, <laughs> a strange well, thing. I was and, like, wow, I wish that worked that way. <laughs> and there is, oddly enough, I think some of the best, and like when I, I, I spend a lot of my time debunking myths, whether I want to or not, I still have to do it. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that I think about a really good lie or a really good bit of disinformation has a tiny, tiny grain of truth to it. A kernel of truth, albeit one that's horrifically malformed and shaped <laughs> that. So when you take, say, vaccine shedding, the thing that they're all going <laughs> mad about at the moment, there are people who are working on vaccinations that basically you can confer to other people. So the idea is you're, you're and if, as I understand it, I'm not an immunologist, so my understanding of it is fairly poor. But the idea mm -hmm. of this is that it you can vector it. So you get a, a, infected with a harmless version of something that has similar mm -hmm. antibodies that you can pass on to someone who won't have that. So you, know, you get some kind of passive immunity from passing it on. However, that does not work for things like COVID. That's not what's being done with COVID. That's not what's being done in any vaccine at the moment. Mm -hmm. It's a theoretical construct that people have talked about. Right. So Funny how they glom that. onto that obscure science and won't accept the. But here's the thing: it's uh, big I, pharma absolutely. aspiring to keep it away from us. <laughs> Why would big pharma do that anyway? I mean, one of the things I've I always, never I figured it out. Well, I mean, I mean, one of my big approaches with people is I like to try to use a very Socratic method, and I, I know I, I, one of the most um things I'll, you'll get bored of hearing me say if you're ever in one of these discussions. He's like, but "Why? Why do you think that?" Like yeah. what? Just tell me where you where you're coming to from, and you find that people um, there's a few different things. Firstly, I I need to point out that sometimes there is a tendency for people who are scientifically literate to say, oh, you know, people being idiots believing this. Yes, yes, and and I do it. I get frustrated. I mean, this morning I woke up to a rake of very angry messages from a guy who kept sending me links to Sherry Tenpenny and you know Dell Bigtree and all the anti-vaxxers saying you're an idiot, and, this, and I go go away, you idiot. But then yes. I have to realize as well that this stuff is actually as common in people of high intelligence and high education as it is. I mean, I was watching Naomi Wolf the, online the other oh. day mm. as, as a doctorate in literature, I believe, going out there spreading the most asinine conspiracy theories. Um, this does not, I mean, and you, there's very smart people that engage in this. So it's not a function of intelligence or a function of education. It's a function mm. of how you view the world. So... Mm. That's actually harder to change, but also easier to target in a roundabout way, because you're not going to change it in one single sitting. Uh, what you need to do is slowly erode it. So when I find, when I have discussions with people who have, have these beliefs, my trick, my, 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 my aim is not to walk away from that conversation thinking I won that conversation. Yeah. You should, that's the debate mindset you need to get rid of that. You, no one ever changes their, uh, no one ever changes anyone else's mind. 
the best right. we can do is give someone the tools to start changing their own and mm -hmm. the freedom to do so. Mm -hmm. So what you really want to do is plant the seed. You want to go, okay, so why do you believe that? And they give you whatever story. And often, let's say they've heard this and this and this. And you've got to remember, this information is far more vectored than uh, reliable information. We already know by a factor of up to eight or nine, people are more exposed to falsehood. Mm -hmm. So, and that we are humans. We use a thing called the availability heuristic. The more readily we can access something, the more extreme it seems, the more we, mm -hmm. we weigh that as a bit of evidence. It, it's wrong, but it's quick and easy and we do it. So I think if you then say, okay, that's interesting. Here's an alternative suggestion. Like, I, I, I'll give you an example, if I may. It's a bit of a strange one. But I was at a conference oh, three or four years ago in, in Dublin about the HPV vaccine. And the, and the inventor of the HPV vaccine had come over from, from Australia. And I was delighted to hear this talk. But there was a bunch of protesters outside. At the time, it was very contentious in Ireland. And... Mm -hmm. As I was walking, I was living in the UK at the time, but I was, I was traveling back to the train station. And as I was going there, I got followed by a bunch of the protesters. Mm -hmm. And I ducked into a pub, and <laughs> uh, one of my friends was there anyway. And there was three of them. And one of them came over to the table and said, I want to talk to you. Mm -hmm. And my two colleagues who work in vaccine policy were, knew who these people were and were understandably a bit concerned. But I kind of said, I'm floating in the middle here. So I said, look, I'll have a chat with you, All right? And there was something about this. Now I could see a microphone sticking out of their back pocket. We got you attempt, but yeah. I still didn't talk. And I said, tell me everything. And they talked about everything. And their family life was complicated. They had a daughter who was very ill, um, mm -hmm. who had all these psychological issues, who had uh, gender identity issues, had all sorts of stuff going on. And obviously the home life was incredibly stressful. And they felt disrespected by the medical uh, uh, you know, authorities. And, 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 and they felt left on their own. And I asked, when, so why, just out of curiosity, why do you think the HPV vaccine was this? And they said, well, we, this group came to me and my, when I, I, I was trying to find a group for my sick daughter. And, and, they, and I was like, okay. So we talked and I said, I'm going to tell you straight off the bat. I really think your daughter is ill. And I'm so sorry that, that she has gone through this and you as well. And it is terrible that you have been either neglected or maybe not given this. The, the, I said, the only thing you and I disagree on, the only thing is what caused your daughter's illness and how best to treat it. Mm -hmm. I said everything else, because I think there's the things you have to find the commonality, her fear, her problem. And I think that was one of the few times I actually got through to someone. Um, I don't know if I, she gave me her email address. I actually lost it on the way home because I was trying to get away from another two. Um, <laughs> but I, the next protest I said, I didn't see her there. And I, I always mm. often wonder, <clears throat> oh, did, did that do anything? But I, but obviously they, ha she had a lot of stuff going on and she was vulnerable to this and had been pulled into this matrix uh, by people who immediately gave her a simple answer for mm -hmm. the complicated problem she was facing. Mm -hmm. And I think realizing that we're all a bit like her, that like we're all angry, that we're all trying to understand, and the most reductive, simple lens, point a finger at something or someone, is so tempting, but mm -hmm. usually wrong. <laughs> is, this, and, yes. is this how you find uh, the room to let people change their minds? That's the harder part, isn't it? But that's also our own egos, isn't it? Like, I mean, I yeah. used to, no, I put myself out there entirely. I used to think when I had these kind of conversations saying, oh, you're wrong, that it was like, it was a competition. I was there to, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess spending too long as a debater as a student doesn't help either, where I, I'm trying to like win the conversation. But really, that's my own ego. And I needed to check that at the door and go, if I want to do good, 
It's not about getting kudos. And I, I used to, years ago, I kept a blog. I got rid of it because looking back and I just didn't like it because it was, <laughs> it was, it was far too na 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 na. It was far too singing to the choir. I have no interest in preaching the choir these days. Mm -hmm. And I didn't write the book necessarily for people that agree with me. I wrote it for people, like, as I point out, so what's your audience? Just people who like science. Like, no, I, I, one of the nicest things I've got is people who've given this to their parents, people who've given yeah. it to, yeah. and, and I said, I've written it in such a way it's about humans. It's not like a lot of scientists are already going to know a lot of the stuff in it. Not all of it, hopefully, but uh, <laughs> a lot of it. But the point is, we're not just preaching to the choir. We don't live in a society of just people who've had higher education, have been lucky and privileged enough to get that. We're living in, in a complicated world and it matters what everyone thinks. Our, the web isn't just the web belief of ours. It's our web, how it connects to everyone else's. Mm -hmm. Because remember, everyone else's vote counts as much as yours. Uh, <laughs> so this is how society progresses. Everyone needs to have a basic grasp. I think for democracy to thrive, we need to have a basic grasp of, of how we ascertain facts. That was a bit of a tangent. I don't know if I answered any of the questions. Uh, <laughs> we had fun, I hope. No, I'm, I'm sorry. You've only been creating more questions. So that's a, a <laughs> that's good, all right. Yeah, good thing. I'm not boring you yet. That's good. <laughs> you know, so there, there's a couple things I think when uh, we look at, especially lately, um, especially given our uh, past president, uh, and and just the way things are going here in the U.S. Uh, well, I guess even with Brexit, it does seem there's a lot of choose a side. You must choose a side, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And oh, you yeah. identify with that. And so that's your identity. So if you chose the side where members of that side don't wear a mask, then you must also not wear a mask, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Even if somewhere... You go, oh, but the science does say, I know some science. I took biology. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. and I wonder just, yeah, how much of that really plays into making bad decisions? I think a huge amount of it. I think it's a really perceptive question. I'm going to try and answer it without butchering it. But let me, <laughs> let me have a go. So there was a study done on French anti-maskers uh, mm -hmm. just recently. And one of the things, again, I, I have more and more of an appreciation of psychology these days because they're they're... You, you kind of need that human element to understand why yes. people do things. I mean, I love mm -hmm. modeling people's behavior, but in my simulations, people are usually quite rational. That's not the case. Um, oh, I've I got a story that, about my university and uh, testing and student behavior. It, it, we'll get to that. Oh, I, I, I'd like to hear that because I, I, I could probably chime in with some terrible mistakes on my own. But one of the things that they found was that a lot of people that rejected a mask um, directions or, or things like that, or even public health advice in general. View they were they came from across the political spectrum. They were slightly more from the right, but they came from the left as well. And they shared a perception of themselves as free thinkers. Mm -hmm. Right. And we see that an awful lot in conspiracy theories that they yes. uh, the weird thing is because you start with self-perception as I am a free thinker, it actually brings you into weird places. So mm -hmm. for example, if you are a little bit of a contrarian by nature, that you it, it, and, and it's not, I have to say, these things, if you're trying to look at them as entirely rational, you're going to be frustrated. Yes. Because one of my, my uh, I have a friend, she's a professor of psychology over in the UK, Karen Douglas. She's brilliant. And I quote her in the book a bit. So she studies belief psychology and, and, and conspiracy theories. And she has a fantastic paper, which looked at people who believed in either Bin Laden conspiracies or Princess Diana conspiracies. Mm -hmm. And what they found about this, I, I'm trying to answer your question. I know I'm going on a tangent, but I will get That's there. That's okay. Um, they found that 
for example, one narrative they gave about Princess Diana, you know, not people usually equate Bin Laden, Diana. Anyway, uh, <laughs> they were people that were the subject of intense conspiracy, conspiratorial uh, thinking. And they used a U.S. audience for the U.S. one and a British audience for the Diana one. And what they found is they gave people a narrative that Diana had been killed by the Queen because she knew too much, mm-hmm. or Diana had faked her own death. Mm-hmm. Now, there are two, you think, fairly mutually exclusive ideas. No. No, they weren't, because conspiracy theorists, the, the more hardcore the conspiracy theorist was, the more they could willingly accept both narratives at the same time, provided they felt they knew something about a conspiracy. Yeah. What and, and it wasn't some Schrodinger's princess who was both simultaneously alive and dead, or you know, Schrodinger's <laughs> bin Laden. I think I called a chapter in the book that because I just love that paper. <laughs> so it's called Alive and Dead, Belief in, in Contradictory Conspiracy Theories. She found that was a very replicable result that literally, and you see it. For example, I've had people write me furious emails saying, uh, COVID is a hoax, but it's caused by 5G and it's cured by homeopathy. And I'm like, yeah. right, let's unpack that. Those three <laughs> statements are not mutual. What? And all that matters <laughs> to that person is that they know something that you don't. And for two reasons. Firstly, sometimes it's ego. It's like, oh, you know, I, I'm too cool for school. I know too much. I'm brilliant. Without doing the spade work. Because, you know, when you start working on something, you realize how little you know. Like, I work in cancer research, and honestly, the, the, lack, the more I learn, the less I know. And, um, and that's really disconcerting at times. You're like, I got this. I haven't got this. It's, <laughs> it's unpleasant. So you can understand why that appeals. But the, the other thing as well is people are looking for epistemic certainty. They are looking for simple stories that give them the answer. And that gives them a shield. If you think that you know a secret cure for COVID or COVID is a hoax, you don't have to wear a mask, right? But also, you feel safe, even though this is scary. You're like, no, nah, it's not going to get me, because mm-hmm. um, you know. And this is how you go down that rabbit hole. It's very easy for people to fall down that one. And you're right, what you said, John. Like it, it is, it it does suck people down, and they become almost committed to this. But you have to then unpin the motivation, and it's it's a weird game to play when you have to just listen to what someone says and realize this is not like a logical thing where every one of their statements backs everything else up and comes from mm-hmm. a place of evidence this mm-hmm. comes from a place of feeling and they are basically pulling in the little bits and pieces that buttress that that's strange to us as scientists we're like that's not how you do things and i should put a caveat there's a lot of bad science out there as well there's a lot of scientists that do precisely that and that is another part of my research looking at people like that but um overall as scientists we think that's forgotten because it should be it's not a good way of doing things as humans that's what we do first. You get an opinion on something, and then you ch- cherry pick the details to back up that opinion. It's not great, but it's what we do. Right? Isn't that where <clears throat> where we think of Feynman, who tells us that that science is a process to help you, help you, not fool your fool yourself, and you're the easiest one to fool, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yes. and that's true. And also, um, I have another. There's a, there's a professor, David Colhoun, over in the in the UK. I'm very fond of him. He's 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 sarky and very funny. <laughs> he was talking about this for scientists, though. He was saying the purpose of statistical testing is to um is to you know find actual existing data, not to turn baloney into results. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> as well. Um, and like, yeah, we, we, him and I have had great correspondence about inappropriate scientific statistical testing, but that is a story for another day and maybe another book. Well, and if it were another day, we'd, I, we'd be talking about all of my pet peeves, like people around the laboratory and other researchers in the physics lab who say, well, this is an obvious outlier. I'll just get rid of that. <laughs> coupled yeah. coupled with, I used to work 
do research in critical phenomena, where one of the things was to find so-called critical exponents. They were things you could measure that high energy particle physicists could use their theories to predict oddly enough in a weird sort of cross-discipline way. And uh, there was one that was uh, frequently measured and tried to get at in groups of people that I moved in. And there was a paper that I've lost track of that even tracked how the very precise measurements of the laboratory people followed the predictions <laughs> of the theorists over about 12 years. Yeah, that, uh, that sounds... That, that it wasn't measurements converging like this. They were all very tight and they just sort of followed it around until everybody decided this is probably what it was. Well, uh, <laughs> this is motivational bias, I think, but... Isn't the old joke about the theoretical physicist that uh, the experimentalist runs up to him and shows results and says, ah, as I predicted, the curve goes this way. And he goes, no, 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 you're reading it upside down. And he flicks it. Yes, as I predicted, <laughs> the curve goes this way. That's but, right. That's right. I, I, had a, I had a colleague, and this in biological science, it's, it's even worse. I had, um, <laughs> I, I had a, a colleague in Oxford, and she's a brilliant biologist, and we work very closely on a lot of things. And this superstar PI had been hired, a clinician scientist, papers in cell, nature, science, the works, you know. And he had a very cool result that she wanted to replicate because it, it fed into some research we were doing. And she, this is so cool. And it was with mice, which are hard and to work with, and you have to be careful of the ethics of it and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So yeah. she spent months trying to replicate this, this result. And she really, really, really tried, and she got nowhere. And one day she went to him and said, name censored. I would like, you know, could you help me a little bit with this? I'm really struggling. And he said, hey, don't even worry about it. I did that experiment like a hundred and, no, he said, I remember, I remember the number, 312 times, and it only worked eight times. So I pulled yeah. it down. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Now, my Man. friend's husband is a statistician. Yeah. And we all went out to dinner that night. <laughs> and if she was upset, I've never seen him out. He just, he just, I need, yeah. excuse me, I need to leave the room. He's very, usually a very <laughs> stoic German statistician. And he just, I could hear him yelling outside. And I'm like, and that wow. is very common. People aren't necessarily trying to commit fraud, but, but there's pathological science. I mean, yes. where people really, and I, I've been reviewing papers. I get sent lots of weird papers to review because people look at my CV and go, yeah, he, this is a weird paper. Send sure. it to him. And you often see like, you've, you, scientists doing their own version of motivated reasoning, which I would call pathological science, where they yeah. they kind of cherry pick what they want to be true or what mm -hmm. they know will get published. And you're like, yeah, except that's not even true, is it? That's, yeah. You didn't do any kind of science, like you said with the Feynman quote, scientific investigation is about trying to prove everything wrong. And that with, withstands well, that attempt be, to yeah. falsify. You go, I, I provisionally accept that. Yeah, uh, it's not about just selling your narrative, and unfortunately, granting and funding is all done on finding positive yep. results. That's when right. you're building a house, the last brick you put on the house isn't the most important because <laughs> it's a process. Yet, in some reason, in scientific publishing, we reward the person yeah. that put the brick on last, even if they put right. it on wrong. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's 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 a frustration to me. But that's a part of my research is in meta research, and that's a rant yeah. for another day. I will, I will restrain this. We have so many things for other days, and I'm also well, a strong Popper fan, and I want to take Popper. you to task for one thing before we end. Did I misquote him? Please don't no, tell me. No, 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 oh. no. There was something else related to statistics, which is to, in passing, I mean, it was not a strong point, is to say statistics can lie, and I, I try to avoid that because, like, 
the statistics don't lie. The people wielding the statistics are the ones who are lying. Sure. Yeah, uh, that's that's a fair that's yeah. more than a fair observation. But no, uh, Popper, I don't have any arguments. <laughs> actually, Popper, Popper had a call. I wanted to put it. I should have put it in a footnote, but I I I, I couldn't actually validate the veracity of it on, at the time, so I didn't. Yeah. But it is actually apparently true. Uh, obviously, uh, Popper had a running thing with Thomas Kuhn. They they weren't big. Yeah. Uh, they didn't, and, and I, I would lean far more popularian than I do Kuhnian for a few reasons. Mm -hmm. yes. I think it's a bit like Marx. It's you can make it so vague that it's it's it technically is anything you want it to be. Yes. Uh, but one of the things is apparently the person who wrote a blog about this, uh, and you said they were in a UK bookshop, and and obviously Kuhn's book is the structure of scientific revolutions, right. and Popper was a little bit sarky at times, <laughs> and as he picked up Kuhn's book from the bookshelf, an old man behind him said structure of my ass <laughs> and it was Karl Popper and I I love that little story but I unfortunately because I couldn't source the actual veracity of it I was like I can't use it but it, I, I want to believe that's true that's I, I promise not to use it a lot in the future thank <laughs> you link to where I found it but I'm also like it's probably just a just so story but my right. god I'd love to use it's it fun. but you can't because you know if you can't source it Right, like, you don't want it, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, that was a standard I was holding myself to. I'm like, and I often quote this time that I really want to use a quote, and I go and look it up and go, oh, that well, wasn't so. That wasn't Lincoln. That well, wasn't. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. my friend. Yeah. <laughs> my friend's Gmail sign off is is always like the problem with quotes on the internet is that you can never check the veracity, and he has it attributed to Abraham Lincoln, yep. and that's in his email signature all the time. But the other one, I was driving home earlier on today, and I went through the town next to me. And it has a lovely, they have some festival on, they have lovely quotes in it. And it had a lovely picture of the bust of Plato. And it said, be kind for everyone you know is, is fighting a hard battle. And yeah. that's a lovely quote, but it ain't Plato. Yeah. It's, it was written in the 18th century by a female author whose name has escaped me, but it was not Plato. I'm like, yeah, it's yeah. not yeah. quite in fitting with his, uh, his hors d'oeuvre anyway. So, you know. <laughs> I, I before we get too far away from statistics, <laughs> I, well, no, I just want I'm just uh, thinking that humans are really bad at assessing risk. Oh, yeah. terrible! Really bad. Terrible at it. Um, and uh, yeah, so <laughs> take well, it away. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we, we really are. Like, I mean, I've been writing about this a bit recently, and I, I'm, I'm preparing an article with a statistician friend of mine on this. But we had in Europe the. And okay, this is probably a bad example, but it's it's a topical one. We had the AstraZeneca vaccine, which mm -hmm. was suspended in several countries mm -hmm. because of a potential risk, and and the Johnson and Johnson in in, in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. rare rare blood clot, rare and, and quite rare. But yeah. one of the things that we're bad at doing is we're bad at risk balancing. So mm -hmm. the point is, we see we tend to be uh, all or nothing thinkers, which is not yeah. great. So that has a risk. I won't take that. Uh, we do it with vaccines or whatever else. And of course, anything that has a biological effect has a propensity or potential for a side effect. But you need to stack that with benefits. So I always give the analogy that, yeah, your seatbelt in your car could decapitate you in a crash. It's far, 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 far more likely to save your life. So on balance of probability, you wear your seatbelt, you know. Um, we are bad at doing that risk, though. I mean, the classic example, I think, it was in free economics, and I'm going to abuse that a little bit because I know there's questions about you know, some of the examples there, but one of them is like, you know, um, after September the 11th in, in the US, people were so afraid of flying that that they drove more and there was a lot more car accidents. Yeah. Because we're also, we remember a mode of scary stories. 
but we don't then weigh them up going god could that happen like we, we remember that terrible thing happened with that vaccine but mm-hmm. we don't go but how likely is that to happen or how what's the veracity of that story mm-hmm. because that's not how humans think we remember won't let that happen to me and we think we're doing statistics but we're not and unfortunately i mean i even found for the paper we're doing recently the statistics are hard to do i mean you do have to mm-hmm. you know drill down into data and then you know make sure you're doing the correct inference from it and then you have to weigh it up and it's not straightforward so i totally understand why people fall for that kind of stuff but we are terrible at risk we are mm-hmm. so bad and i'm sure you can give me a magnitude of examples <laughs> of that as well sure sure yeah that that's one thing well and the media doesn't help no yeah. because they want a good story i mean yes. and i i mean i i find it in my in my early career when i was young and full of um, i mean i'm allegedly still young i'm not sure if i believe that <laughs> when i was younger i used to bash um i used to really take a swing at journalists for getting science wrong and now I lecture young scientists on how to speak to the, the media. I have a deeper appreciation of what they're trying to do. They mm-hmm. are trying to convey uh, stories to an audience who don't necessarily want to hear them. And they have eight or nine stories to turn around a day. Yeah. And they will go, if someone gives them an interpretation that's very sexy or very scandalous, that's mm-hmm. what they'll go with because that's yes. engagement. And they're mm-hmm. under, you know, and unfortunately, when you look at the breakdown of where scientific misinformation flows from, and we've seen this very much in the pandemic, it's easy to point to journalists and say that, 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 that story was inaccurate. But if you trace back the inaccuracies, there's a study done this a few years ago, most of them came from the press release and not from yes. the press office. It came from yes. the PI themselves. That's yeah. right. That's right. Sexied up their results because it's good publicity. We've seen it during the, and I, this is the piece I wrote a few weeks ago for Scientific American. We've seen a lot of people who are scientifically credentialed uh, come out and support fringe theories during uh, COVID because the, they know they'll get publicity for it. And yeah. you have to be sympathetic to journalists who are trying to cover this because they're not experts. They're reliant mm-hmm. on us to be relatively honest, but we can't even have that necessarily inside a field. So I've gotten a lot more sympathetic to journalists as I've worked more with them. I've realized if you want to have good science coverage, you got to work with journalists and realize what they're up against. Mm-hmm. And if you answer your phone all the time, my trick was insomnia, so I could answer my phone all the time. <laughs> uh, and, and that makes you kind of useful. Even if you can point them the right direction, go. This is not me, but you should talk to uh, X Y Z. She's brilliant, mm. or he's. You know, that's so useful to a journalist. But it's not useful. You say, I am. I'll email you back in six days when your deadline was 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 two days ago. You know. <laughs> right, right. I was just trying to see who you had in there. He's well known for meta meta analysis. John John Yanidis. Yeah. I, I yeah. See, I can't pronounce words. I can just write them. Down. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no. John, John is definitely um, is 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 a very interesting character. I mean, he's world leader meta research, but obviously during the pandemic has become a lightning rod for controversy too, and that's that's interesting right. as well. <clears throat> right, because it's like, wait, isn't this the guy who, you know, everyone's yeah. like, why is he, why is he, the person helping the president, and in in a normal, you know, based on the 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 information he was providing, which was wrong. There's only gonna be 10,000 deaths or whatever he said, completely mm. off base, you know? But then you read what he did in the past and you would think, yeah, he'll be a great guy for this. But in the end, he wasn't. So something went awry. And and, and that's why, you know, so I will say in, in John's defense, and he is anyone who's worked, had the pleasure of working with John, which I certainly have, he's an excellent scientist yeah. and very open-minded about things. 
But I think if you spend, and this is with anyone, if you spend your whole career basically knowing that part of your niche is to is to find the opposite of not to not deliver. I'm saying this wrong, but you are well used to um, exposing overstatements by other people. Right. It's very easy for that to happen. I mean, the Santa Clara study had massive limitations, and maybe too much was drawn. I think now the data is pretty clear. Too much was drawn from that. The inferences that John and his team made from that were were mm. were overstretched, um, and that happens. It's an interesting one, though. It happens a lot with scientists. I mean, I write about in the book about Kelvin, who's undoubtedly a brilliant, mm -hmm. brilliant scientist, mm -hmm. getting the age of the Earth horrifically wrong. Mm -hmm. but, but he was, and people forget when you delve into that and the nerdy physics of it. Uh, yes, physicists are nerds. I, 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 we were allowed to insult our own. Um, everything he did was right and was based on what he'd done before, except there was limitations in his assumption that screwed the whole thing up. Yeah, uh, I think that kind of story is that it's not science is not about your authority science is not about how good yeah. your prior reputation is you can still right. make mistakes right you Huge can mistakes yeah. and i mean we all have have you ever looked at one of your previously published papers and go Oof, <laughs> it's a horrible typo in that or that equation does not work why did i do that um and of course the more high profile you are the more that your your opinion is going to count and matter but does it make make you infallible does it make you even more likely to be right that yeah. is debatable uh, yeah, and yeah. I think we have to be very cognizant. And this is why we can't have arguments from authority. It's not just that, like, at the moment, one of the, the leading purveyors of, of scientific disinformation in Europe uh, is a former star of Irish science. Mm -hmm. Luc Montagier, I'm pronouncing his name oh, right. Oh, sure. Nobel Prize winner sure. is an absolute crank. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Hopefully he won't sue us for that. But, you know, like... <laughs> sort of the Linus Pauling effect. <laughs> Linus, well, absolutely. And, and we, I talk a bit about the two of them in the book. And I think... There's nothing because you former brilliance doesn't guarantee future brilliance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. And science isn't about how good the person is. Science is a good analysis. So you can do an excellent piece of science and follow it up with a terrible one, or vice versa. It's all about the method, the method, the method, not the people. People make mistakes. Right. The method is what we should care about. And the the method does depend on people doing it. And so a little thing that a phrase that I've been thinking of for now most of the past administration is you have to have scientists doing it in good faith oh absolutely and and i think and it's very hard for scientists sometimes i mean i i've been doing it it's a, tough it, it, but it's also tough to check your your preconceptions rare mm -hmm. like what well, i'm again I, I like i said i peer review a lot of papers from from groups that i know that editors have a question mark about and they send them to me as the kind of the X-Files of scientific papers. I <laughs> and yes. it's quite clear these people might be individually brilliant scientists, but they cannot check their pathological obsession with this result. And whether they mean to or not, they mm -hmm. have fixed the game so that their study in two men and a dog is, <laughs> is now like, they're like, this is going to, you know, revolutionize healthcare. And you're like, it's not though. Homeopathy <laughs> still doesn't work. And you've, you've, right. you've not done anything to, all you've done is a really poor analysis on limited data, which you over-interpreted. Yes. You really want it to be true. And also, you know that a positive result is far more likely to be published than a, that didn't work. Um, <laughs> the great example of that is there's a guy in the UK called Edgar Ernst, and I love him. He's, a, he's originally a German scientist, uh, doctor who trained in homeopathy, all that stuff. And he was appointed first ever professor of complementary medicine in 2003. And everyone was like, all the, the complementary medicine crowd were super excited. Finally, they're going to be taken seriously. 
And in fairness to Edward Ernst, he systematically destroyed several tenths of their belief <laughs> by going, I tested this, it didn't work. Didn't yeah. He became such a hate figure that Prince Charles maneuvered to have, who's a big believer in homeopathy, maneuvered to have him dismissed from his post. Wow. So I, I quote Edward a little bit in the book as well, but like this, he, he was a good example of someone that every, every reason to be pathologically, uh, you know, to, to, to back up the, the, area he came from and he just went no none of his works yeah and I, wow, I think that was really impressive. <laughs> yeah yeah so it can be done but it's really really hard to check mm -hmm. your uh, your biases which that is why we need to be honest about our flaws and Feynman said that too yes yeah. that you have to point out where you could have the weaknesses in your method as much as everything else like if I I will analyze two men and a dog but I only looked at two men and a dog well you better make that yeah. clear why you did that otherwise it looks like you were desperately trying to make that work. Which is tied to the whole trying to do in good faith. It can't, uh, it can't always be responsible for yourself without somebody looking mm -hmm. because you're all on inside of yourself, which is yeah. inside your preconceptions. You need the outside, hence the um, at least lip service towards not appealing to authority and science, but saying, show it for yourself. And that may have gotten me to the quotation you you quote bertrand russell and and i like this one so much i even typed it up in bold face that to endure uncertainty is difficult but so are most of the other virtues <laughs> it just... uh, i just i i actually i have to i leaned on I, i'm a big fan of, of of russell as a philosopher and as a writer if you ever read any of his uh, his books he's a real smart ass but he's yes. an early 1900 smart ass where you're like is this sass or is he just english i don't it's know sass. it's sass <laughs> yeah uh, it's like all those people say, surely Shakespeare didn't mean that. It's like he meant. Oh that. no, he, he didn't. Yeah, yeah. that's a dick joke right there in Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> I, my former life, I was an actor and uh, yeah. an actor, a musician, and <laughs> I, I did a lot of Shakespeare stuff. And you're like, people would often say, "That sounds really beautiful." And you're like, "Yeah, you know what that actually means." You know what he's actually <laughs> saying. This is really, and they're like, "But that's so vulgar and childish." Congratulations, yes. humans, are, humans are vulgar and childish, and we still laugh at jokes yes. about farts. Okay, there's universals. It, you know, just because you learned it in the setting where this was very erudite doesn't actually mean it was supposed to be at the time. <laughs> Mozart used to write some pretty foul things. I think one of his little ditties was Lick Mick im Arsch, which means <laughs> Lick My Ass. And that is something Mozart wrote. And yes. So, you know, my German is not well known. I once spoke German, now I don't. So, yeah. <laughs> so. Well, oh, I see we're past an hour and it's so fun. <laughs> it's uh, lots yeah. of great topics. I've and the in fact, now with that Mozart thing. So I've definitely got yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> we, fi we finally got to the sound bite. Yeah, that, there that, we that, go. That's when I will remember from this. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the few people tuning in live are like, okay, that's what, what this whole thing was about. So, right. well, honestly, though, we talked a lot and that makes perfect sense because this book is full of information. Like yeah. your favorite conspiracy theory to love or hate is in here, most likely. And uh, all the ways our brains sort of mess us up is in here too, right? So as told through stories. As told through stories. Yeah. So um, in fact, that's, that's the thing I was like, oh, it's just a little paperback. It's a little thick, but I honestly, I'm reading and I'm like, you know, it wasn't difficult to read, but I just kept reading and reading. I'm like, does this book end? Not in a bad way. I was like, 
How oh. could how could there be that much information to so share? I'll, 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 at, least, at least you get value for money. I mean, I yeah. don't want well, that's true. Pay for something and, maybe, and not get something from it. That's maybe right. it's a little scary that there's that much to talk about. I, and I, you know? I scraped, I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg because I had to be very careful. Because at one stage I was like, I could just put everything in. And I was like, no, this is going to be like something the size of the Bible if I try to do that. So let's just go for the most common yeah. and not try to be exhaustive because otherwise, yeah, it would have been even worse. <laughs> worse, I shouldn't say that about my own work. My, no, my, my publicist just going, no, 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 no. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, and then I felt bad going, does this book ever end? That's not what I meant. <laughs> the never-ending story, which did actually it, it end. Is. As a kid, that did upset me, but now and ever. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I mean, um, so if you are in the U.S., you're going to want to pick up good thinking. And if you're in the U.K. or probably Europe, you want to pick up the Irrational Ape, the one with the old subtitle or the new subtitle. <laughs> And if you, if you really, if you want to be completed and find out where I change things, you can pick up both. Oh, but I, and I, yeah, and compare where that, well, wow, that would be. There's a I Russian think. and a Taiwanese and a Chinese edition as well. Oh. But I, because I'm, I'm only a monoglot, I've already mm -hmm. found out that there's mistranslations in the Russian edition, which are quite interesting because I did criticize Putin a bit. And I wonder, <laughs> my Russian friend is currently reading it and she's like, yeah, I have both editions. They've definitely made some interesting um, changes. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Makes sense, I guess. Hey, hmm. thank you so much so, for having me on. I've really, really enjoyed it. <laughs> I'll ask a quick question. You got yeah. another idea for a book in the future? I do. I have two or three. Um, mm -hmm. as like, 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 like yourself. I'm. Um, I also work as as an academic. Work is in that loose yeah. term that academics um, do. Um, <laughs> but I, I do. I have. I've. I've really realized that disinformation. I think is. Uh, such a huge issue. I know I touched about it in the book and I do a few chapters on it, but I really want to do something in depth about that because it fascinates mm -hmm. me how much of a challenge that is. We have only scraped the surface of how much damage disinformation will do to us in future and mm -hmm. falsehoods and social media has amplified that to such a huge degree that I want to look at the stories about that too. And I have a lot. So maybe that's the next one. There's another mm -hmm. one about how we get science wrong as scientists, but that's, that's damn. There's a chain. I mean, if, if 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 I live that long, I mean, I feel I'm getting older and older each year. <laughs> you know. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cumulative. <laughs> yeah, and, and all the damage accrues cumulatively yep, as well. That's right. Like, even now, you know. <laughs> that's right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and I do look forward to either of those books. They sound really. I'll, I'll make sure I'll make sure you two get the first the first copies ah, if, if they ever come out. But don't hold your breath because. I, okay. I'm slow when it comes to writing, or slowish, but you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm in the research phase, and that's that's taking me it's taking me a year so far, so that's yeah. fun. Well, and things will change. That sounds like an before. offer we can't turn down. I yeah, think. it's true. It's true. It's true. It's a pleasure to meet you both as well, and thank you so much. And of course, stay in touch. Definitely, yes. definitely. Thank you. Okay. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us, and don't forget to to pick up a copy of Good Thinking or The Irrational Ape and uh, share it with friends and family and whoever you think needs to know more about these things. So, all right. Okay. Take care. We'll see you again. Take easy.